Let's go ahead and turn to God's Word this morning. The text will be printed uh, in your bulletin as well as up on the screens, but we're going to be looking at uh, Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking at the second half of the chapter, so verses 9 through 21. I will be reading from the ESV throughout, and that's going to be up on the screens for you and in your bulletin. But it's good for us to know uh, where we are in the Scriptures when we come to a particular passage, that Romans 12, 9 through 21 does not stand alone, but there is a specific context in which this uh, place of Scripture is located in the Bible. Over the last six months, we have walked through the first 11 chapters, and last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 12 where he has turned a page. But it's good for us to know the context of the first 11 chapters because it really does inform chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15, which are high on do this, Christian. But if you're going to take chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 by themselves, it can be very dangerous. So we need to understand where Paul has led us first in the first 11 chapters. Chapter 3, he laid out that all have sinned, each one of us, you and me alike, fallen short of the glory of God. And that it is only through the Lord's acquittedness of our punishment through the punishment that was given to Jesus Christ, that we can be made right with him. That by faith in Jesus, that we are reconciled to God, we enjoy a restored relationship to him. And in chapter 10, it tells us that God freely offers this to us in the gospel, promising this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So in all of this, we see specifically that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. In Romans 5, I didn't mention this last week, but I want to specifically touch on this context for us because I think it really does inform where we are in chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. But in chapter 5, he says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And here's the important part. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So now as we turn to Romans chapter 12, we are going to see the implications for the Christian, for the one who has received mercy, of how your life is to be changed because of all God has done for us. And specifically today, since the love of God has been poured into our hearts, how are we to treat those around us? And it's only when someone has received the love of God that they can truly love as God is calling us to hear. So the love has to be poured into your heart first before you can pour it out into someone else's like he's calling us to in Romans chapter 12. Let's go ahead and open the text today. We're going to be in uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, we come before you now, uh, humbled by uh, the love that you have given us through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we were alien to you, that we were hostile to you, that we had rebelled against you. And in seeing that, you sent your own Son to live a perfect life, to give us the love that we did not deserve. Not only did he love us, but he also died for us and rose from the dead, conquering sin and death once and for all. Now as we come to Romans chapter 12, God, we pray that that would fuel the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ, and all he has done for us would fuel the call to action that Paul is giving us here, that we, he, we would love because we have been loved first. Father, we come now and ask for your help to understand your word, to apply it to our lives and be edified by this time. Precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, just in case you have been living under a rock, there is a movie that came out in 2013, a Disney hit movie called Frozen. I have three daughters, if you don't know that, and this, this songs have just been echoing in my mind for eight years. So, the story is about two sisters, Anna and Elsa, and we see earlier in life their parents died from a tragic boat accident. So when Elsa, the older daughter of the two, turns 21, they are holding a coronation where Elsa will be named queen. And after years of the castle being closed off to the public after a tragic accident with Elsa's magic, the doors are now open. Dignitaries from all around Europe arrive to pay tribute to Elsa, and the younger sister, Anna, is thrilled to have the company after a very lonely childhood. At this coronation, Anna ends up meeting Prince Hans from the Southern Isles, and his, she is smitten by him. They sing a song together in true Disney fashion. Am I crazy? I love crazy. And they say that they are going to get married. Upset by this news, Queen Elsa accidentally uses her powers, causing the land to freeze over, and embarrassed, she leaves the castle in haste. And the entire movie... It's about getting the land restored from the ice to bring Elsa back. But throughout time, we see this, this romance between Anna and Prince Hans playing out, that he is becoming the hero of the movie. And towards the end of the movie, Anna is near death from a frozen heart. And we find out that the antidote is true love and a true love's kiss. Prince Hans finds this out, runs to the castle, opens the door, and sees suffering Anna, who looks like she is breathing her last few breaths. Anna says, all I need is a true love's kiss. Prince Hans leans in to kiss her. He stops inches away and says, Oh, Anna, if only there was someone out there who loved you. 
Prince Hans' apparent love for Anna, if you don't know this movie, it's really dramatic and I'm not doing a good job uh, with the dr- dramatic, but I watched the scene, I'm like, this is a great illustration. It's, it's a really big moment there. You think that this man loves her, right? And to save her life, all he has to do is kiss her and gets so close and says, I don't love you. His apparent love for Anna was simply a means to an end. He wanted her for her crown of royalty. And while we chuckle about this, it's funny, right? Let it go, like that's like the, the theme song for my family in the last 10 years. It, it just resounds in my head. But often, we look to others. We say we love them. But we have motives that are not godly at all. Despite the love that God has for us as believers, our love for others is not sincere often. We may say nice things to others to make them feel good, or maybe we can look like we are getting along with other people by doing this. Today in our passage, Paul is calling believers to a different type of love. He's calling God's people to love others as he has loved them. The theme for today, this is in your bulletin, it'll be up on the screens for you as well, is this. Since God's love has been poured into our hearts, we are to love those God has placed in our lives. Since God's love has been poured into our hearts, we are to love those God has placed in our lives. We're going to look at two specific things, loving the church, the people within the body of Christ, and then loving the world, people outside. Let's first look at uh, loving the church. This is verses 9 through 13 and 15 through 16. In the original language in this section, what we read today, read it like commands. Do this, do this, do this. But in the original, we're actually seeing that the verb usage is actually describing what love is. There's a lot of parallels between Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, love is this, love is this, love is this. So here, it could be understood to say love is genuine. It abhors what is evil. It holds fast to what is good. It loves others with brotherly affection. It outdoes one another in showing honor. So it is describing the love that God's people are to have in this first section with others in the body of Christ. This word, agape, the same word that is used throughout the book of Romans is primarily used for how God loves his people and how that is demonstrated on the cross but now in romans chapter 12 paul makes a transition he uses the same word to describe how christians are to love other believers how you are loved by god that is how you are to love those around you that is what he is saying so this section is answering the question how are we to love others in the church I think there's five descriptors. There's a lot here, right? I mean, we read like one thing after the other, man. Like we could have taken a sermon on each one of those little snippets, but I'm trying to cover all of this in one. So we're going to go kind of quick through this again. There's five descriptors, though, that we're going to walk through. And many theologians will say that these commands of how we're to love get harder as they go on. So if you get the first one, you probably will be struggling with the second one. They get harder as love goes on, okay? So the first one is genuine Verse 9 says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So he begins by explaining that our love must be sincere or genuine without hypocrisy. 
This statement is so simple. It's so straightforward, yet so foundational for the Christian. And if you're anything like me, this is simple to, to hear, to say, but it's very difficult to put into practice because so much of our life is filled with hypocrisy. We say we believe one thing, I trust God, but I go over here and I act in a different way. It is, our life is often full of hypocrisy. So when it says love is good, that is difficult for us. John Murray says this, if love is the sum of virtue, hypocrisy is the sum of vice. What a contradiction to bring these two together, that this genuine love will lead you to loving what is good and hating what is evil for other people. It's interesting to me, I don't know if you thought about this when you saw this text, but it's interesting to me that he says, let love be genuine. And we could say abhor or hate what is evil. It's interesting that he uses love and hate together. We think of those as quite opposites, right? But hatred is actually a partner to love. We see that here because evil, it tears down those whom we love. So we want only what is good for those people whom we love. So therefore, we hate what tears them down. Like a parent hates the thought of a careless child. My 18-month-old keeps doing this. This is why this came to my mind. Walking into the street, happy as can be. So Christians are to genuinely hate anything that tears others down in the church. Secondly, affectionate. This is verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So the Greek word here for love is combining really two words, the friendship type of love and family type of love. And th- this type of love, what it's getting at, involves commitment. That is the biggest word here. That it does not waver with circumstances changing. Like my family is my family to the end. This type of love outdoes one another in honor. This is not to say that you're in competition with the other people around you, but love in the Christian family is to express itself in mutual, mutual honor and affection. Both of these things, each of us is to strive to have both affection and honor for others here in the body of Christ. Third, it's enthusiastic. This is verses 11 and 12. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And this word fervent that he uses brings the connotation of burning. A burning zeal. The love is to be displayed with a burning energy for other people as we serve the Lord. Think of this idea of zeal, right? Zeal is what gets us up in the morning to get tasks done, that keeps us up late to be able, be able to get the things done that we need to. Helps us to sit on the edge of our seat as we accomplish our goal. So Paul here is saying, you need to have zeal. That's how much love you need to have for the people around you. But this zeal is not coming just from within. He roots it in God's very spirit, which guards against this notion of excitement being the tell of holiness. Because it is the Spirit who is giving you the zeal. It is a renewed energy, consistency 
in humble obedience to the service of the Lord. Fourth is generous. This is verse 13. We are to be generous as we love those around us. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That is verse 13. So love is generous as it shares with the needy, as it cares for the brothers and sisters in Christ. It should not only cost us emotionally, but it should also deep go into our pockets, into our wallets and our purses. It should cost us something. Stott says, if generosity is shown to the needy, then hospitality is shown to visitors. And in this time of the letter, hospitality was vitally important. There was not hotels on every corner like we think of it now. But inns were few and far between. So the idea of bringing other people in was very normal for a Christian person. This is a way they showed God's love by bringing people in because often inns were what one theologian says were dirty dens of depravity. They were dangerous. So bringing people in was part of the mark of the church. Seeking to show hospitality is not just to offer it when you see it needed, but it's seeking. You see the word, it says, seek to show hospitality. Go out and look for people that need care. Stott says this in his commentary. We are not just to receive the stranger when he comes to us, but actually to inquire after and look carefully for strangers, to pursue them and search them out everywhere, lest perchance somewhere they may sit in the streets or lie without a roof over their head. That the body of Christ is to be looking, to seeking after people to be hospitable to. Verse 5, I'm sorry, uh, number 5 is sympathetic. This is verses 15 through 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. See that any good friend will do things like this. But believers specifically are called to sit with people in their highs and their lows. That love, it never sits on the sideline when people are walking through tragedies or really high moments in their lives. And several commentators noted Paul's order here, putting rejoice first, due to the reality that it's often easier for us to mourn with those who mourn than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice, because in rejoicing, we often get envious and jealous. We are to rejoice in others' successes, despite the temptation to feel like, why didn't I get that? So we ought to look at our own hearts, see our motivation for rejoicing with those who rejoice. Is it genuine? I read a story recently. talks about uh, a dad taking his kids to a shopping mall. It's a little bit older because some of the context is, you'll, you'll hear it and understand this, but it's not what happens today. But when I was a child, this would have happened. So that's why I think I took to it. In this story, the dad is taking his kids shopping, and he says he takes these two children, Helen, eight years old, and Brandon, five years old, to, to, the, to the mall to do a little shopping. As they drove up, they spotted an 18-wheeler parked outside with a bo- big sign on it that said, Petting Zoo. The kids jumped up and rushed and asked, Daddy, 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 can we go? Please, please, please. Probably more times than that they would have said please, but they said this in the story. And he said, Sure. 
I flipped them both a quarter before walking into Sears. That's how you know, because Sears is no longer a thing, right? They bolted away, and I felt free to take my time looking at a scroll saw. A petting zoo consists of a portable fence erected in a mall with about six inches of sawdust and a hundred little furry baby animals of all kinds. Kids pay their money and stay in the enclosure with the squirmy little creatures while their moms and dads shop. doesn't happen anymore, but it did when I was a kid. A few minutes later, I turned around and saw Helen walking along behind me. I was shocked to see she preferred the hardware department to the petting zoo. But the dad, recognizing his error, he bent down and asked her what was wrong. She looked up with her giant brown eyes and said, Well, Daddy, it costs 50 cents to get into the petting zoo. So I gave Brandon my quarter. Then she said the most beautiful thing I had ever heard. She repeated the family motto, which is, love is action. She had given Brandon her quarter, and no one loves cuddly, furry creatures more than Helen does. She had watched events happen in our lives, and us say love is action for years upon years, and now it had become part of her very life. So as the father, what do you think he did? Well, definitely not what I would have done, but he's a better father than me, I think. Well, not what you might have think. As soon as he finished his errands, he took Helen to the petting zoo. They stood there by the fence and watched Brandon go crazy, petting and feeding the animals. Helen stood there with her hands and chin resting on the fence and just watched Brandon. I had 50 cents burning in my pocket. I never offered it to Helen and she never asked because she knew the whole family motto. But she was wrong. It's not love as action. It's love is sacrificial action. Love always pays a price. Love always costs something. So what the Apostle Paul is calling us to hear, the church that he has bought with his own body and blood is sacrificial love. Love that has not come without a cost to you and me. And we need to know that going in, saying, I like to do these things. That sounds really nice. I just kind of add it on to my life. No, it's going to cost us something to love others like this. To love with sincerity, with affection, with enthusiasm, with generosity, with sympathy will cost you, church. If we think back to last week, we talked about getting our minds renewed by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit through God's Word. And once we do that, He's leading us on to, to see that we're not going to think of ourselves as highly as we did before. We're going to think of others first, more important than ourselves. And this leads us to love them like we are loved by Christ. So when you think about this in your own life, you think about people in this church, maybe not this isn't your home church, maybe in your home church, or here in this building, would you say that you love them? Would you say that you know them? We have to first know each other to be able to love each other in this way. So maybe the first step is getting to know others in the church in a way that you can love them like this. Get plugged into a ministry somewhere or just talk to somebody. From there, you begin to build a relationship that heads you down a path to love each other like Paul is describing here. And once you have these relationships, like many of us in this room do, you ask yourself, how am I viewing this relationship? Do you love these people with sincerity? Remember, Paul is saying, love is not defined by hypocrisy. Saying one thing and meaning another. Saying, I love these people, but doing nothing about it. 
Does your life show that you love others in the church? Do you spend time getting to know their desires and needs so that you can love like Paul has commanded us? It's easy for all of us, myself included, to come into church, to leave quickly. Actually, I won't do that because I've got to lock the doors and stuff. But some of us will leave quickly. It's easy, right? I've done it in my past to not stick around, to not get invested. And there's many reasons you wouldn't give yourself to other people. Maybe you feel like you don't have the time or the capacity. You feel like it doesn't fit your personality. You like to keep to yourself. Maybe you've been hurt by the church in the past. And I want to legitimize that. It does happen. Because this is not a place where people, a perfect people just come to hang out. I love this quote from one of our other churches in the Presbytery. He said that the church is not a country club for saints, but it is a hospital for sinners. So with a hospital of sinners, people will get hurt. But the church reacts in a different way, that we look to care for each other, to reconcile with one another. I don't want to downplay the hurt, but maybe that's one of the reasons that you're not plugging in is because the, the hurt that you have felt. Maybe you just don't prioritize it. Saying, well, I got, I got friends over here and I got family, especially in El Paso. It's, right, it's like, I got 30 family members in the town. Why do I need to love anyone else? But Paul here... He's saying, he's not saying if you have time, love. If you need friends, love. If you feel like it, love. No, he's saying with sincerity, you need to love those in the church. So what I would encourage you in this way to find someone in the church you can befriend. And if you look around a room like this, it may seem overwhelming to you. But you don't have to begin by loving everyone. Right? You can pick one person, one couple, one family to invest in so you can grow together in this way. You can find a life group. This is why they're designed, so we can love each other well in our life, get to know each other well. These commands can seem daunting, right? They are for me. But I would encourage us all to start small and love the church as God has called us to. Okay, that's loving the Church, let's look secondly at loving the world. This is verses uh, 14 and then 17 through 21. Verse 14 says this, Bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. See here, blessing and cursing are opposites. Opposite responses to being persecuted. Our normal reaction in life is to hit back when we're hit. Nine times out of ten when I break up a fight in my house. The first thing that is said is, she hit me first. And what did the other person do? Oh, well, she slapped her back, of course. That's the normal response, right? Our gut reaction will be to fight back when hardships come from another person. But here, Paul is saying, even more than speaking well or not hitting back, Paul takes it a step further. And he says, pray for blessing for that person. He's echoing, a lot of this echoes Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pretty much all of these commands are echoed in the Sermon on the Mount. So you can go look at that in uh, Matthew 5 through 7. Verse 17 through 18, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So not only are we not to return evil with evil, but we are to strive not to provoke opposition. The truth is, 
the gospel brings enough opposition in itself. The very message of the gospel that we are sinners needing saving, that brings enough opposition. He's saying, let your life reflect the beauty of your creator, for good is recognizable by all. He goes on to verses 19 and 20 and says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. So when dealing with the outside world, we are to trust God first to work in their lives. That it, it, salvation does not come through your work. It is a work of God Himself. And this includes leaving room for the wrath of God to have vengeance on injustice. Stott says it this way, the very two activities which are prohibited to us, which are retaliation and punishment, are no, now said to belong to God. The reason the repayment or judging of evil is forbidden to us is not that it is wrong in itself, for evil deserves to be punished and should be, but that it is not God's, it is God's prerogative and not ours. We are to leave it to the wrath of God, which is expressed now through the state's administration of justice, since the magistrate is God's servant, an agent of wrath to, be, to bring punishment on wrongdoers, and which will finally be expressed on the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So this text is not just saying that we are to allow serious wrongs to go unpunished, but God has brought about an agent of justice, namely now in, in the state, which we'll talk about ne- more next week. Chuck isn't going to cover that, which I'm glad I don't have to, but... Um, The point of our passage today here is that we are not to take vengeance ourselves on other people. Rather, to your wrongdoers, he says, heap, don't heap it on them, I'm sorry. Do good to your enemies, and this will heap burning pangs of shame and contrition on their heads that hopefully will lead them to God's grace. I don't know if you've ever grilled on a charcoal grill i have done it many times and i have forgotten my gloves on a small occasion and just the ember of a when i pour it over and an ember hits me on the hand it stings all night he the illustration he's giving us here is that if you're kind to those people around you who are being hard on you it's like dumping the whole bucket of charcoal on their head go grill on a charcoal grill and imagine that it's, it would be immensely painful. And that is to bring them to repentance. Not to saying, oh, they're getting what is coming to them. No, it is hurting their very souls because they see, oh, I am sinning against this person. And they see that by you loving them well. Romans chapter 12 is a difficult passage for a grace-centered church like we are because there's so many calls, so many commands to God's people. So I wanted to start us this morning with reminding us of the first 11 chapters, what God has done for us through Jesus. That it is only through the love of God that has been poured into our hearts that we can love other people. And I'm going to leave you with that same thing. Because in Romans chapter 12, Paul is spelling out what the life implications are for God's people, for those who have received mercy, for those who have received God's love. At the same time, 
this current section, we can see many parallels to the work of Jesus on our behalf. Many ways that he has called us to love are fulfilled in what, how Jesus loved us in the first place. That Jesus' love was genuine. It was sincere in every way. And it was shown by his taking on flesh that he didn't have to do. We take that for granted. He didn't have to take on a body. He didn't have to do any of this, but he did. His love was genuine. His love was affectionate for his people. He claims and loves us as brothers and sisters. He honors us by bringing about our adoption and treating us like beloved family. Jesus' love was enthusiastic. It burned hot for his people. He was dedicated to accomplishing the work of his people despite the blood coming out of his skin because he was so nervous about the wrath that was going to be poured out on him. He was enthusiastic still to go through in the end. Jesus hears our prayers when tribulation comes. He meets our each and every need we have. Jesus welcomes us into his home, giving us life-changing hospitality. And while we are strangers to him, he took on flesh to bring us back into his family. Jesus did what is honorable in the sight of all by sacrificing himself for those he loves. Jesus did not curse us when we cursed him, but he blessed us with his incarnation. Jesus did not repay evil for evil, but he brought us peace through his resurrection. And as his enemy, Jesus fed us and gave us something to drink, namely his own body and blood, which, was purchase, who, which purchased our salvation and right standing with God. So as the Apostle Paul calls us to love over and over and over again in this chapter, it can only come, that love can only come through the well of Jesus' love for you first. So we need to rest in 1 John 4.19 when he says, we love because he first loved us. Let us always rest in the love of Christ for us first and foremost. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you loved us first. Despite the evil we had done to you, despite the persecution we had brought upon all of humanity, Father, you saw the problem that we could never fix on our own, and you brought a solution in your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have given us his body and blood to purchase our salvation, our right standing with you. And Father, as we have been poured into so greatly, we pray that our lives would be vessels of your love and grace for the people around us. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.